Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our Workflow Wednesday. Uh, this week, we're joined by a Frank. Uh, actually, how do you pronounce your last name? I'm sorry. Graffinino. Graffinino. Frank Graffinino of a company called Medics. They work. Um, well, actually, I'll let I'll let Frank kind of explain what Medics is all about. Um, and, and kind of a little bit of your the part that you play in that, Frank. Okay. Um, well, let's see. Medics is a company uh, formed in 2003, I believe. Um, and we're in the Houston area. We're in the South Houston area. So uh, Houston is, a, is really, really large. And so Johnson Space Center, NASA Johnson Space Center is kind of outside of the, the main Houston metro area. And so our office is just kind of right outside of their gates. And oh. uh, we do a number of different things. We Most of our work is focused at, at Johnson Space Center. Um, we support things like uh, simulation development and robotics and some software, a few different software packages that we maintain. And then there's a, a few hardware tasks that we uh, that we work on as well. So it's kind of a mix of things. I, I think we have a pretty wide, diverse set of tasks that we work on for them. But uh, as we were mentioning before before we went live, Johnson Space Center's, you know, uh, folks may be familiar with a few of the NASA centers. There's Kennedy Space Center, where everybody really, you know, they launch from in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Ames out in, in, in California. Uh, Johnson Space Center is in Houston. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. Fame are here calling down to Houston on all the space to <laughs> ground links. And so their primary focus is human space flight. And so a lot of our tasks uh, for Johnson Space Center focus around um, the, you know, not, not traditionally things like telescopes or probes or rovers, but things like Space Station, Orion, the Gateway Program, things where humans are going to space. Cool. Yeah. And so do you guys work exclusively for Johnson Space Center? Like that's the only, so that's, or do you... That's uh, what that's where like our largest contract is and where most of our work is. We do have a, a commercial side of the company too, where we we take some of the skills that we build up working for NASA and we apply them to the commercial world. So we sell some simulators for uh, industries like oil and gas, um, uh, agricultural industry, construction industry, things like that. So we'll do some virtual reality simulators uh, for training. Um, soft, different software packages, that sort of thing. So we do have a commercial side as well. Um, our website, I believe, kind of features a few of those different aspects. But most, I would say, most of our work and most of our employees are involved with the with the NASA work that we do. Okay, that's cool. And what is your part in all of that? Oof. Um, well, I've been with the company a long time, and it, okay. it changes around a lot. We're still uh, small enough that. Um, most people are not really pigeonholed into a role. So, oh, cool. I mean, I like to think that we probably not too dissimilar to you guys at Puget, but um, kind of whatever needs to be done for the particular task that we're working, right? So uh, if I'm working, like right now, I'm, I'm working part-time on an RFID task for mm-hmm. a project um, in EV at Johnson Space Center. And so there I'm kind of doing project management and also some 
uh, work for operations on the space station that we have. And then another life that I live is for the Gateway Project, which we can talk more about. Oh, yeah. And there I'm doing like systems engineering, so helping to write con ops and requirements documents and stuff that's not as technically sexy as some <laughs> other things. So I, I, don't, I don't know that I necessarily have a, a single role, but uh, just trying to find, you know, for the projects that we work, whatever skills we can bring to bear, that, that sort of thing. Right on. My, right. Most of my background is in software. Oh, okay. And my my education is electrical engineering. If that helps, cool. Oh no, that's great. Um, well, actually, Matt Matt, one of our our coworkers, actually just popped into the YouTube, and he's asking any cool stuff you're working on uh, for future Moon Mars missions oh, that you can talk about. Of course, yes, yes. Actually, so <clears throat> there is the Artemis program, um, uh, which your viewers can can do a Google search on. Um, it's pretty exciting. The, the, the focus of it is to start with the exploration of the South Pole of the Moon. Hmm. And the, the, the vehicles that we're looking to do that with are the Orion spacecraft, which Orion uh, is a vehicle being built by Lockheed Martin. Uh, it's, been in, it's been in construction for a while now, and they're hoping to have the first flights soon. But the other component of that is a vehicle called the Gateway, which is what I'm working on. And the Gateway is meant to be basically like a mini space station. If you're familiar with the International Space Station, this is supposed to be like a, a miniaturized version of that that's going to be uh, in a moon orbit, kind of a weird moon orbit called a near rectilinear halo orbit or NRHO. So it's going to orbit at the poles really close at the North Pole and then get really far away at the South Pole. So it has lots of time over the South Pole. And um, and so the idea would be that you have this staging ground around the moon that vehicles, when they go down to the surface, can come back up to this space station, can get back in Orion, go back and forth to Earth, and you would have this, this gateway to the moon. That's so cool. that is... Um, that is where I'm spending quite a bit of my time um, right now is on that. Well, yeah. I can get into more detail if people are interested in it, but that's that's the, that's the there's a number of other components to Artemis. There's commercial missions that they're funding to go down to the surface and put rovers and do stuff. And there's, um, you know, uh, logistics missions to Gateway. So they're going to pay uh, private companies to go and send supplies back and forth to Gateway, that sort of thing. That's awesome. Yeah, I was uh, as you mentioned it. I was starting to look up the websites and and just kind of skimming through it, and that's that's exciting stuff. Um, what I suppose I just uh, I'm curious myself. What um, how do I phrase this? Um, what if we can if we can send just a, a rocket or something straight to the moon? What's the benefit to having the the gateway there like how does this uh yeah uh, i'm smiling because that's a fantastic question and it's one that's being debated right now um there are some there are some camps out there that say look we shouldn't be doing gateway this is a distraction we should just be getting uh straight to the moon, lunar surface um I don't know if I'm, I'm going to be a good advocate here, but I mean, my understanding is that this gateway is very beneficial because it allows you to stage things for a, a continued presence at the at the South Pole surface. So there's a number of challenges that come with working at the South Pole. 
Um, if you have communication infrastructure in space, you have a way to go easily up and down with vehicles that aren't uh, so big that you have to bring all the fuel to get back to Earth with you down mm. to the surface. Um, things like that. There's a number of trade-offs. So that's my understanding as to why. The, the other um, great thing that's going to happen with Gateway, there, there's two modules that start it. There's the power propulsion element, which a company called Maxar is building. That, that's also the thing that's different than Space Station, by the way. This is being built in a way that's different than any spacecraft in the past, where it's partly being done as a government. The government is kind of the integrator, but then they have private companies building each module or countries. So oh. um, so Maxar has won the contracts building the power propulsion element, and then Northrop Grumman has won the contract for the... Um, sort of the first main habitable module called Halo. Um, so the, the other nice thing you get with Gateway, back to your question, is you get this, this staging ground that other companies and other countries can then, like for example, another module that flies up later is called the IHAB, the International HAB. So the European Space Agency is gonna be providing that. That's gonna be their mechanism for uh, contributing and you know having some of their astronauts fly. And, and then there'll be a Canadian robotic arm. Uh, the Canadians are kind of the, the, the leaders in space robotics uh, and they have been since the shuttle program. So wow, they're, that's they're, cool. they've signed up to provide a robotic arm for the gateway. So it does give you a platform for more collaboration um, as well as some resources in Lunar Orbit. Okay. That's okay. Could this, so I suppose this could kind of be the beginning of something um, that could grow to to then maybe be a, a jump off point to Mars or or further. Yes, I think that's the that's the hope is that a lot of the infrastructure and things that we're learning. You know, one one of the main things we have to build up before we go to Mars is our knowledge. Um, you know, building spacecraft and building systems uh, is one thing, but <clears throat> uh, learning how to deal with the radiation environment beyond low Earth orbit. See, in low Earth orbit, I'm not a radiation expert, but I think you're still inside the Van Allen belts. So you, the, the radiation environment, while being much more harsh up there than it is where it's nice and comfy on Earth, once you get out to the moon, it's it's a lot worse. Hmm. Um, so how do we deal with that, both from a hardware perspective and a human perspective? How do we deal with in-situ resources? How do we learn to repair stuff on orbit? I mean, one of the things that we're a little bit spoiled with the space station is if something fails, you know, the, less, the next logistics flight comes up, just brings up another one. Hmm. Um, so... You know how when when the treadmill fails on the way to Mars, that's not going to be an option, right? They, they're going to have to figure out a way to fix it, or everyone's mm -hmm. bones are going to decay. So um, there's all kinds of stuff that we need to develop, but one of them is really our the knowledge that we need to figure out how to do this sort of thing. So I think that's the main thing that the moon, in my opinion, that's one of the main things that you're going to get, but you're right. I think it, it could also be sort of a launch pad. It could be, you know, a way to sit there and mine resources for a while that you could then bring with you to Mars, that sort of thing. Oh, neat. Yeah. This, uh, this is kind of exciting stuff. I, I'm, I'm really excited for the future of uh, space flight and, and just the, space sector in general it's, i think in a bigger picture i think it's kind of important to 
humanity as a whole to really kind of put a lot of effort into exploring space. And it's just neat to be kind of, uh, uh, you know, at least tangentially kind of involved in this. It's really neat. Mm -hmm. um, we have another question from YouTube. Tulius Tech asks, what was the hardest or toughest simulation and how much power and time did it take? Oh, okay. That's a, that's a great question. Um, let's see. It's hard to quantify a simulation in terms of power and time, but I can, I think I can easily answer that question with the biggest simulation I've ever worked on. And it was actually one that's relevant to this discussion because we brought in the Puget team to help provide some of the computers that we did. Um, and so, uh, if any of your viewers are familiar with a facility called the SSTF or the Space Station Training Facility, um, it is, uh, it's basically exactly what it sounds like. It's an entire facility with the modules mocked up and all of the computers and all of the flight software. Flight software is a word that we means the software that actually runs on orbit. Where all of that stuff is running and you've got the ground. <clears throat> The ground controllers tied in, so they, they see their displays as if they're talking to the real space station in orbit. And then all the stuff that that flight software is expecting to make it think it's in orbit, uh, like, you know, uh, rates from the gyros and environmental sensors and everything that it, it needs to keep the software happy. You have a simulation that's driving all that stuff. So all the software thinks it's in orbit and all the flight controllers looking at all the data looks like it's in orbit and the astronauts on the hand controllers and doing things. And, and so that's the, the goal of the space station train facility. And the size of that sim is just absolutely massive. Um, because when you think about all of the distributed computers on space station, all of the different communications infrastructure, the, all of the 1553 networks, um, the video, the audio, the, uh, just all the different subsystems, power, heating, lighting, ECLIS, uh, everything. Um, to put all of that in the simulation and get all of that stuff feeding displays was a really grand task. So they built it once. They built that whole facility as Space Station was being built. And then eventually, as technology changed and they were migrating the PCs and doing things, um, NASA realized that they wanted to basically rewrite it. They wanted to redo it. And that's that's the... That's where I came in. Wow. Uh, they approached the engineering directorate, and and uh, and we led that effort. And so it was a sim that took, I mean, hundreds of developers, and probably I don't know. It was more than three years. I don't know how many total uh, to get to an operational point, but it, it was a long time. Wow, jeez. And. Uh, the simulation executive, like the part that's running the the tricks, the main trick simulation for all the environment and stuff, um, wound up running on these these huge uh, sixty four core machines. Um, but the interesting part that I was working on was the graphics infrastructure. So everywhere that either video was involved or they had windows, we needed to be able to give graphics to make it look like it was on, on orbit. Okay. So, for example, there's a module in the space station called the cupola. Uh, 
you guys have probably seen it in pictures with all the windows going around. They take pictures in there. Yeah. So they have one of those. There's a robotics workstation in there. They can command the robot arm from in there. So one of our tasks is we've got to put these big, large monitors on the outside of these windows and make it look like there's the earth below you and make it look, you know, see the station out the window and everything. Um, And then we need for all the monitors that are routing video from external cameras, those have to have 3D graphics generating all those views. Um, so that's where we approach Puget. What we, the, the machines that do that are called image generators or IGs for short. And, um, and so we have a number of those to generate all the different views. And that's what we wound up using the Puget boxes for was to build, uh, some Linux machines, um, that could do, I think six, I think we wound up doing six image channels in a single box and then we have multiple boxes so anyway i know that's a long-winded answer but uh Tullius, that that was the largest sim that i've ever been a part of um and they're still using it every day to train ground controllers and crew members before they go to space station so it's pretty exciting wow so all that um 3d data all the visual data is that all custom done or did you have an external um like engine that you used and just customized for your use? Yeah, so <clears throat> this is another area where NASA's been doing um, a lot of work to figure out if we want to shift to a commercial product or not. So the history here is that um, NASA's Virtual Reality Lab, which is a fantastic lab, I think a couple of your guys got to go in there whenever they came down and toured. Um, it's been around for a long time. They were doing virtual reality before, before hardly, you know, when it, there was very, very few people doing virtual reality at that time. They didn't even have, you know, 3d <laughs> renderers available. They didn't have model formats available. They didn't have really any hardware. So these guys were buying uh, portions of, of VR hunts and then modifying it. Um, there's a guy that works in the lab there. That's kind of a, a super guru who, who, built a lot of this stuff in his garage. And so they were building before now, you know, VR helmets are sort of a consumer commodity. But back then uh, they were building most of their. So anyway, to do all that, they developed their own custom renderer. Uh, Originally it was called DSP. And then as it got ported to uh, Windows and other PC platforms, uh, it became called Doug. So Doug Graphics, D-O-U-G. And so that became what they used to render all the graphics in the virtual reality lab. And the crew would come in the VR lab, they train EVA there for spacewalks. And the crew was looking at their graphics and really loving it and said, hey, why can't we have these graphics in all of our training facilities? And they said, well, you can. So they started bringing Doug out to all of the facilities like Space Station Training Facility, the systems engineering simulator and Building 16, the big graphical domes that where you go in and there's graphics all around you. Um, the dynamic skills trainers, um, the, uh, there's an on-orbit simulator called Robot. Um, so anyway, all of these simulation facilities wound up converting to use Doug Graphics. Um, so that's the first part of your answer, that the SSTF and all of the other ones are using a custom renderer called Doug. Um, there's actually a version of that available to the public called Edge for engineering Doug graphics for exploration. Um, your viewers can can find that on a Google search. But uh, so that's the first part of your answer. So the second 
question would be, well, now we have Unity, we have Unreal, we have, you know, all of these crisis, we have all these engines. Um, why, why keep building that? And for some of the things that we're doing, particularly some of the VR prototype efforts, a lot of times we do just use Unity. And there's a couple of people that still use Unreal for things. Um, the problem is we have some unique requirements that's really hard to find in uh, some of the commercial game engines. Hmm. The biggest of which is we, because we're doing these sims and they're driving data vehicle on orbit around the earth, um, and you're taking data straight out of orbital dynamics and putting them straight in, you wind up with these really large numbers where you need double precision support hmm. in the, uh, not really in the rendering on the video card, but in the scene. So in the, you know, the, uh, all the node positions and stuff that you have in the scene. Um, and there's very few renderers that have that double precision support. Um, I think what winds up happening, like I, I believe the guys who wrote uh, Kerbal Space Program uh, and some of those other, because they have the same problem, right? They have the same exact problem. Uh, is What they wind up doing is they, I think they wind up duplicating the scene structure from Unity or whatever they're using in, in double precision and then calculating all of their stuff and then copying it back over into a single precision scene for each view that they render relative to the camera. So um, uh, it's just a workaround, I think, that you have to do. So, so far, we haven't done that. Uh, the other unique requirement that we have is we, we're kind of forced to run in some facilities and display environments that probably Unity on a real it's not going to be a big user base for them. So, for example, that giant graphics dome in mm-hmm. the SES where you've got all these projectors and they have to warp all the views and blend them. And, and well, there's not a lot of people doing that. Um, and then, you know, in the SSTF, we're doing some pretty custom things and we run Linux everywhere. So um, it, it's it's difficult as we've played with the idea of converting over to Unity and Unreal and other commercial engines, it's wound up being more efficient to just, if we have a new project that comes in that's not in an existing facility or something, and we can, we're can we going to be writing it from scratch anyway, if it's something that Unity or Unreal can handle, a lot of times we'll do it in there real quickly. But for all of the stuff in our existing facilities where we need double precision, we need Z-tiling, we need uh, some of these fancy graphics configurations we wound up doing in, a, in this custom renderer called Doug or Edge. <laughs> I, w- I talked for a really long time, but hopefully that answered your yeah. question. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So uh, Matt has another question on YouTube. He says, what are your thoughts on full VR versus the the big dome rooms or whatever yes. that name is for training? Right. Well, there's there's been pros and cons to both. Um, so, for example, one of the one of the big reasons why the dome is so valuable um, is we can put a whole mock-up in there with real hardware interfaces. So, for example, that cupola, like I was talking to you about earlier, if you do a quick Google image search on ISS cupola, C-U-P-O-L-A, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, they can roll in a mock-up of that cupola in the graphics dome and have the real windows, right? Then uh, they... 
they have the real robotics workstation in there, so the crew members are using the real hand controllers, which they need for dynamic skills training. They have the real PCS, so they're commanding real flight software uh, for you know on the visiting vehicle and on the space station. All of that simulation is running the real software. The software for the arm, for the robotics arm, is all real, so it thinks it's enormous. So you get really accurate responses, and the crew is touching and feeling the real thing. Um, when you're in VR, as I'm sure you guys have imagined, it's hard to do any of that stuff, right? Just even grabbing your mouse and typing on the keyboard can be difficult. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're looking at a number of different things in our prototype area about being able to do pass-through. So maybe you can have some real hardware interfaces in front um, with a VR helmet. Uh, so we have a number of research projects looking stuff like that. But that's that's one of the places where the, the dome really shines beyond VR because you can you don't have anything on your head you don't mm-hmm. have not wearing anything and you can look out the windows and you can see and you've got real hand controllers so it really it's kind of the most immersive but it's also super expensive right because you have to build this mock-up uh, so as long as you're building it once and you can use it for decades then it, it's worth it it's worth the money um, but it's not really worth it if you want to prototype <laughs> something oh. really fast and then change it yeah right kind of reminds me of the virtual production field right now for movie making and cinematography where they're filming against LED walls so that way they can have a whole set right there and not have to do it in post and kind of Mandalorian-esque yeah stuff. yeah yeah that's very similar that's really amazing stuff there yeah uh, just great. all of the color and and yeah. real-time changes that these guys can make is is fantastic yeah. so yeah, it, it, it's it's very similar to that in the dome um, where you've got a simulation that's driving. You know, you see the earth going by. You see the arm moving. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, it's being driven by a real-time engine. I guess they're using Unreal, I think, for mm-hmm. Mandalorian. But uh, same kind of thing um, here. The so like the, I guess the scene that's being shown onto the on the dome or or in um, the training and stuff is that is that live data like this is exactly what they would see if they looked out the window right now or is it all just pretend? It's live in the sense that it's being driven from the sim. So uh, if they move the arm in the sim, they see it out the window. Mm-hmm. You know, if they grab a module, they move it, or the visiting vehicle that's flying up to to birth that they grab um so all of that stuff is there but it's not it's not reflecting anything in real life if that's what you mean like it's not real time right so whatever wherever the sim says it's over the earth that's the portion of the earth we'll see but there'll be night passes they'll see city lights and stuff like that um so yeah so it, it, it is real time it's not just a uh a pre-rendered thing that just rotates it's it's real-time graphics uh similar i guess to like the unreal stuff that they're doing where you can change things you can move stuff in the scene and you'll see it move um but it's not trying to represent uh stuff that's going on on station in real life okay yeah right. um oh john says hi <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then uh, Matt has another great question too. Is um, has there been any work done to combine microgravity environment training with VR headsets? For example, being underwater plus VR. That's a fantastic question. So yes. Um, so the, this wonderful group in the VR lab, um, 
I had the privilege of being able to work with that. I still work with them a little bit. My time is mostly spent on those other projects I was mentioning now, but I still get to work and support them a little. Um, but that group, they're amazing. Um, they, they've been asked to do a number of different things. There is a, a facility that you might be familiar with called the MBL or the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. Mm-hmm. And it's a gigantic pool, um, the size of which is only relevant when you actually stand on the side of the pool and look down and then feel a sense of nervousness. <laughs> it feels like you're looking <laughs> over like a four-story building. Um, it's really, really huge. Um, so they, they, they get in these suits these spacesuits and they go down and they do way outs to make them to where they don't roll or pitch and they try to float in one area and then they they go around these fake structures um to try to simulate spacewalks on space station that is the best way that we have for the microgravity environment for the for the human Mm -hmm. um there are a couple of other options, though. So one, uh, they have some facilities in Building 9 that an old one called Pogo, and now they have one called Argos for – I'm going to mess this up. Somebody's going to yell at me when I get to work. <laughs> I think it's like artificial reduced gravity offload system or something reduced gravity offload, um, something like that. But it's basically a tethered system. Uh like an inverted pendulum at the top. And so as the, as the person hanging from the cable moves the the pendulum cable, it tries to keep it constantly vertical and you'll float around Mm -hmm. from the, in the Z direction, they can do whatever G you want. You can do zero G, you can do lunar gravity, Mars gravity, whatever. Um, So, with those facilities around, and then the, the last option you have is when you want to simulate zero gravity on a payload. So um, the VR lab has this really cool robot called um, Charlotte, which is a tendon-based robot. It's a it's like a cube with cables coming out all the corners to these motors. Um, and so you can imagine, and then there's a, a force moment plate on the front of this cube. And so what you can do is you can load up a simulation of, of a payload, let's say it has this mass and has this moment of inertia, and you can run a simulation and it'll sit there and float. And if you put a force in on this force moment plate, that'll run into the simulation. It'll calculate how the payload should move with those forces and torch plot, and then it'll start to float away and rotate and move however it's supposed to. So to the person handling it in VR, they grab onto the handrails and they feel it as it, as it would really feel on orbit. Uh, wow. So meaning everything is weightless, but everything still has inertia, right? So it would be if something has a lot of inertia, a lot of mass, when you push really hard on it, it would start moving away, but very slowly, right? Um, another way to think about it, I use this example of uh, if you had a really long tube which, which we did recently have on the OBSS. And if you had a handrail on the side of it and you grabbed it, it might be really hard to turn in this direction, but maybe really easy to roll around the, mm. the central axis, right? Mm-hmm. And so this simulator lets them simulate all that in the VR lab, and they grab onto where the handrails really are. In VR, they see the real handrails, and they see their virtual hands, and they grab it. But now when it moves, it moves the way they expect. So those mm-hmm. are kind of like three of the big zero-gravity facilities. So to get back to... Uh, 
Matt's question. Um, getting VR underwater has been talked about, uh, but it's very difficult. The underwater environment is already very dangerous. Um, so if you ever go to the NBL and you just see the amount of safety they have there, it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, the, the one that's more attractive or maybe a little bit um, easier to, to imagine is on Argo. So you've got these guys hanging from a cable. Can we put a VR helmet on them and then try to create an environment where they can see virtual, you know, see the space station, see stuff around them, but be moving in zero degree in Argos. They are working on that. Um, there, there's a number of issues with like, you know, VR being tethered, the helmets being tethered and how do we run those signals and uh, uh, the safety people, you're still required to wear a helmet while you're in Argo. So it's a little bit hard. How do we fit the VR stuff in to, you know, this sort of customizing helmets and things. Yeah. Yeah. They, they've looked at like uh, the helmets that the guys wear on um, like motorbikes and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a number of challenges, but the answer to your question is yes. And if you, if you get a chance to tour JSC, if you go in building nine, you should be able to see uh, the Argos, um, uh, facility there and see some people hanging on cables and floating around and you'll probably if you did a search on youtube for argos and nasa there may be some videos of of people doing checkouts and things and they put robots in there they put all kind of stuff cool oh we have another question oh were you gonna say something kelly no Oh, we have another question from YouTube uh, from Gray Tower. With the new graphics and CPU tech coming out in the public recently, how is that impacting your work? Uh, is it more of a headache needing to rewrite programs to get the best from the tech? That's a great question. So <clears throat> for the Doug stuff that I was talking about earlier, the Doug and Edge, these custom renderers, um, we have kind of, you know, tied our horse to the gaming industry. So I saw someone else earlier was talking about quadros and Genlock and stuff. We have, we have tried to avoid when we can using those workstation line. Um, obviously there's a huge cost advantage going to, from a G force to a quadro, a gigantic quadro, even though the hardware is very similar, right? They know that they can charge way more for those cards. Yeah. Um, so we developed some software-based locking technology to do frame locking. Uh, uh, it's not quite a gin lock that they were referring to. It's, it's a little bit different. Uh, but we find that as long as we can keep our frame rates high enough, uh, we can get away with it. So most right. of our facilities are using the GeForce lines of cards. Um, having said that, uh, you know, we we have the, the VR lab is always sort of doing things to try to take advantage of newer um, you know OpenGL extensions and things that are enabled by newer cards um, but for the most part you know it's usually just trying to strap on the gains of the of the speed you know so we get a faster card and then because our I think like a lot of video games probably are we're very um, uh, CPU limited. The, the main the main factor that affects our rendering right now is single thread performance. Um, so typically, you know, the faster you get in those uh, 
you know those charts they have on the CPU. Uh, right. I forget what page that is. CPU benchmarks for single thread performance. Um, those tend to be the ones that can pump out things to the graphics cards faster for us, just because our our software has been historically tied to single thread performance. Um, now, I, I we haven't had a chance to try any of these new AMD. I mean, that that single thread performance has been dominated by Intel for a long time, and I've right. just you know been kind of following a little bit about these new AMD processors and them kind of rocking the boat a bit. Um, yeah. So I don't know if any of the folks in the VR lab have tried those yet to see what kind of performance increases we get. But I would, if it follows the pattern, those, those should work better for us. Hmm. But it's not too much of like redoing a lot of stuff to get it to work. No, not to work. I mean, typically everything we're doing is all backwards compatible with newer cards. We probably could do more if we wanted to spend more money making, you know, shadows perform better or ambient occlusion perform better, but it all comes down to uh, where you want to spend your labor money. And if they have crews that are waiting the train to go up, you know, there's only so many people that can do certain things. So we don't have a lot of time to just freely upgrade things um, sort of. Uh, well, I would imagine if that things are meeting the minimum requirements. A lot of times we're happy just leaving them there, but um I would imagine the graphical fidelity isn't the biggest concern for what you guys are doing compared to just physical accuracy of movements and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and that comes from the simulation part of it. Right. Um, the, the, the simulations, which is done in a framework called trick. Uh, if anybody wants to look that up, that is another NASA framework. Let me turn my light back on. Um, that's another NASA framework that's open source and freely available. It's on uh, it's on GitHub actually. Uh, if any of your viewers are interested in looking it up, um, so typically, as opposed to maybe some other things that you're used to in VR and things like that, where the the simulation and the graphics are all together in one engine. Um, historically, we've kept our simulation stuff separate from our graphics. And that has a number of advantages. Um, one is that you can run the sims non-real-time. Um, if the sim has graphics in the loop and it's constantly going back and forth to graphics, you can only run as fast as the graphics can keep up. And then it requires everyone to have graphics and a video card and that sort of stuff. Whereas a lot of the sims that we're reusing, there's engineers doing analysis on it. So they may need to run this sim 3,000 times with a Monte Carlo sweep of some parameter or whatever. They don't want to run all of those with graphics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you, we call that batch mode. So you have the ability to run batch mode in non-real-time. It allows you to run sims that run slower than real-time. So maybe you're doing some analysis and you want to crank the dynamics frequency way, way, way up to where, you know, a 10-second sim takes, you know, all week to run. Um, well, keeping that separate from graphics can be useful too. So, so that accuracy of the motion that comes from the simulation side, and uh, and there's a lot of things that we do. Uh, Medics is, is involved with a lot of those things, like the multi-body dynamics packages, the contact dynamics, the orbital dynamics, um, things like that that determine the motion of bodies. And then, yeah, you're right. I think. Um, once it gets down to the graphics component, it really depends on what they're training. 
Uh, so, for example, a lot of the stuff we're trained is what's called dynamic skills. So the crew has got a hand controller and they're practicing grappling something and moving it and berthing it. Um, it turns out for a lot of those things, you don't have to have super high fidelity graphics. And, and uh, you know, the crew is just happy with a, a decent frame rate so that they can learn how and everything in space moves super, super slowly. Mm-hmm. which is kind of ironic because really they're moving super, super fast, but you know, relative to the camera, everything moves really slowly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you can have crew come in and they want to grapple a vehicle, but they want to do a lighting study and they want to see, okay, well, we're in this part of the orbit. Is the light going to reflect off the vehicle and be, mm-hmm. well, now you start to get in some kind of serious questions, right? You have to, you have to make sure, well, is this graphics tool we're using the right, the right thing for that? Um, it turns out at NASA, like being able to know the limitations of the tools you're using is just as important as the capabilities of the tools themselves. Um, so so I, I think you're right. There are lots of cases, and the ones we try to make sure we limit ourselves to are the ones where our graphics are good enough. And mm-hmm. then we try to keep an eye out for places where people may be trying to use our graphics for something where they shouldn't, like... Um, well, well, you know, we moved this thing and dug, and we saw that there was a gap, so it means it's going to fit. And we go, well, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Hang on a second. Uh, so things like that. Um, yeah. So I, I like this question here from YouTube from Ben uh, Vizena. Vizena. Yeah. Um, how do you imagine improvements in device resiliency for long duration and non-LEO spaceflight being achieved? Will we need improvements in hardware, software, number of spare parts? Yeah. Um, so that that there, <clears throat> there's a lot of that going on on space station. We're trying to figure out how to get better at building things and fixing things like we talked about. I think, and maybe this is what Ben's referring to. Um, is once you get outside of the Van Allen radiation, but the, the Van Allen belts, and you get in these higher radiation environments, uh, and this is something that would be applicable to you guys, um, is radiation on computers um, is a difficult topic. Sure. It's, it's difficult in that we don't have a lot of data to study it once you get out to those environments, and we don't even really have good ways to test it right now. But we do know that the smaller these feature sizes get on these processors, the more susceptible to radiation they become. Okay. Uh, so when you know a cosmic ray goes through these things, uh, when you had a really old, you know that that's why a lot of those satellites and things still use like power PC architecture processors and stuff. So what's going to happen when we fly a, you know? Intel Core i7 10th generation laptop into lunar orbit. Nobody's really sure. Um, You know, we're trying to make sure we protect for, you know, to make sure we have time. If the operations we're doing on those laptops, there's time to reboot them if we need, you know, if they lock up and that sort of thing. And then now, not just the, the CPUs, obviously, but you know the memory and the, the video cards. Um, none of that rad hardened stuff for any of that just doesn't exist. Hmm. Um, so this gateway vehicle is going to have a number of computers on it. Some of them are going to be flight certified rad hardened boxes, but some of the um, non-critical assets 
like laptops and there's a gateway support server that we're looking to fly which is going to be sort of like a more traditional rack mounted server uh we're not sure we, we we we're hoping there's a there's a test flight of orion where it's going to go all the way around the moon and come back we're kind of hoping maybe we could put some test hardware on there and power it up and see how it acts as it goes around the moon um it's not really a it's not really a, a great test because you're not going to be up there for a really long time right right but maybe it's something um, the other thing we're going to plan on doing is at least early on in the mission until we can characterize some of the stuff is be probably flying replacements on most of the flights in case when the next crew gets there, all of the, all the laptops might be dead. Um, so also if it lost pressurization and lost air, that could probably kill a lot of LCD screens and things like that. So there's a number of things, not just radiation. Uh, so to Ben's question, um, uh, it, it's a it's a good question. There, there, you know. I think the commercial space flight industry, with all of these new companies flying uh, small satellites and these satellite constellations, I think there's a lot of work done to get more radiation hardware available. So that's really useful. Uh, when it comes down to like consumer devices, though, it's going to be a struggle. Uh, because if, if Puget ever starts selling a rad hardened uh, machine, we'll be first in line to, get, <laughs> to buy one. Sure. Unfortunately, I don't know if you'll get the economy of scale you'll need to, uh, well, to justify your. Is John still on the line? Can we uh, right? bug him to. Well, what sort of thing goes into like rad hardened? Because like, some, it's, not, it's not just like thin sheets of lead or something. Yeah, I, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what goes into that. Um, I mean, I know that there's lots of mechanisms they have with kind of like maybe what you might be familiar with, with like air checking memory and stuff. So you've got lots of duplicate pathways for things. And then if any bit flips, you can detect it and correct it. So there's some of that that goes on. Uh, but in terms of physically, I, I don't I don't really know. I know there's some companies that work on it, but I I don't know. And, and I don't know how many of those are built to work beyond low Earth orbit. Obviously, we have some that, you know, like probes and some spacecraft that went out there. But I don't know if any of them have like a very high compute load. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm not going to do it. Good job answering that question. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, like the commercial side of things. Um, how how much interaction do you guys have with you know like SpaceX or Virgin Galactic or things like that? Yeah. Um, so Medics, uh, we've had. So Medics has a little bit of interaction with SpaceX uh, in that they use our edge graphics. Edge graphics is that version of Doug that I was talking about that's sort of freely available. Um, they use that for some of their things. Boeing's commercial uh, stuff uses edge graphics as well. Um, so there's that. Um, and then they also, you know, NASA gives them a lot of support. So, so really that edge support is really kind of going through our NASA work. They're contacting us. Uh, we just happen to be, uh, I have a lot of history with edge. So that's why, so that's kind of a NASA function. Um, but those companies in SpaceX, especially are kind of very, uh, they, they like to do things themselves. So they don't, they don't contract out many things unless they, unless they have to, um, I don't. What was the rest of your question? I don't know if I answered your question fully or not. No, that did. Um, just like if there's any, because uh, any interaction there, any kind of crossover help. Yeah, or... I mean certainly, 
uh, I haven't had any interaction with Virgin, but uh, SpaceX and Boeing and uh, any of the people who have commercial contracts with NASA, NASA is trying to do their best to make resources available to them. So if they come over and they say, hey, look, we need some software to do this or we need support to be able to use, tie into your simulation, anything like that, we, you know, NASA has is, has an interest in seeing them succeed. So we try to help them uh, whenever we can. I suppose bigger picture too. How has um, the success of uh, like the privatization of spaceflight affected your guys's, um, I guess, work? Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I I think it's been a lot of ways. I think the maybe one of the biggest ways to me is just how inspiring it all has been. Um, you know, I remember we were sitting in the VR lab that first time that um, SpaceX launched and then landed those two. They launched that Falcon Heavy and then landed those two boosters and stuff. I mean, it looked like something straight out of a science fiction movie. Right. Uh, so, I mean, probably the most fundamental, but maybe uh, intangible way that it's that it's impacted NASA is just how inspiring all of it's been. You know, you have so many dedicated teams at these commercial launch companies uh, and it's not just SpaceX. There's a, there's a lot of them Mm -hmm. and just seeing what they're doing, they're pushing envelopes they're trying new things. Um, It's fantastic. It's really, really great. Um, Beyond that, I mean, it's, it's impacted some things like, for example, one of the projects I'm working on is an RFID project. We have some RFID units, uh, these little embedded arm uh, devices on space station. There's six of them. And then there's four antennas on each one. Um, so we run those, we operate those. Uh, but occasionally we need the crew to check on them. Like right now we've been waiting the crew to go and check the power to one of them. Um, with limited crew, we could be waiting a really long time for a crew to have availability to go and do something like that. Their time is super, super valuable. Well, with commercial crew that just went up, our the crew size, I don't know if you guys are following that, but they just went from three crew members on station to seven. Right. Uh, so all of a sudden, there's way more hands on deck to be able to do science and run the ship and do all of these things. Um, so I think a lot of people on the ground that have stuff on station – that's one big impact is that you've got the ability now for crew to get up there um, and you can send four at a time instead of three. So that's one. Another one is um, is the logistics flights. So SpaceX and Northrop Grumman uh, fly logistics. Now, so we have commercial resupply. So that means if we need to f- fly up um, a spare part, um, we have a lot more capability to do that now. Whereas we you know when the shuttle stopped flying, we had very little capability to do that. And then with the SpaceX vehicle, you even have the capability to bring some stuff down. So if you have an experiment or you have like in our case, you have some failed hardware and you think it's worth it to try to bring it down to the ground so you can investigate why it failed. Um, there's more of that going on now because as we're trying to build gateway, this kind of gets to Ben's question a little bit as we're trying to build gateway, if we have hardware that we're using on station and it's failing, well, before we fly the same hardware on Gateway, it might be worth knowing, okay, why why did this go out, right? Okay, it was the SD card that failed or it was this cable that came loose or whatever. Um, 
So with the SpaceX resupply, you actually have the capability to bring some stuff back down to Earth, whereas the other ones, they just burn up uh, the Progress vehicle and uh, the uh, Cygnus vehicle just burn up in, in the Earth atmosphere. I'm, I'm curious, too, how, how much of just regular consumer-grade equipment is is used for um not just not just like on the simulation and the ground side but also up up in space like is it a, you mentioned like sd cards and stuff is it just the standard like i go best buy and pull that off yourself um not quite that easy i wish it was but <laughs> but yeah there's a lot it's on space station there's a lot more of that space station when it first went up um you know was it was a different playground but as station space station became assembly complete um and congress and the taxpayer and everybody was looking at say okay well we spent i don't know how many tens of billions maybe uh, it is it's a lot. I, it's one of the most expensive construction projects that humanity has taken on. I think the interstate project was probably more expensive than that, but it was expensive. So the question, you know, people start going, well, what what are we getting out of this? What universities are running experiments? What, you know, high school kids get to run their robots? What, you know, uh, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of stuff that they want to do. So as that's happened, they've tried to find, you know, places where we can speed up the ability to fly something up there and use it. You know, uh, you know, these people have their software running on an iPad. Let's get that iPad certified. I think they have what's called a buy and fly process where, you know, as long as they can make sure that, you know, if, if this thing is not going to off gas, if that's not using some adhesives inside that's going to off gas and hurt the crew if it gets exposed to vacuum or, um, you know, if it's not going to wind up having some, sharp edges that's going to hurt someone things like that if you can do some basic uh testing then they get a little bit more comfortable there's also a separate network on the space station um that's an ethernet network and a wireless network where they have more of their non-critical stuff that runs so the crew uses their ssc laptops the space station computer so they check email and they do lots of sort of non-critical things on there and it connects into that ethernet network and then the critical side is all over 1553 it's all isolated um now one of the one of the interesting things about that is as we're moving towards gateway um we're we're investigating options to where that isolation is is done different ways it's not necessarily a physical isolation it's more of a virtual isolation so um so to answer your question, yet yeah, lately, uh, it, the space station program has been a lot better about finding ways to get off-the-shelf stuff certified so that you can fly it. It's not as easy as just buying it and throwing it in the vehicle, but they're they're doing their best to try to make it to where they can make sure. Hey, if you plug this into the network, it's not going to infect everything. It's not loaded with vulnerabilities, right? That, that sort of thing. I never would have thought about the like off gassing in a vacuum or something like that. Like, oh, there's a lot there's of stuff. So many things that you buy that you would off gas so much stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would say there's probably tons of products that could never survive vacuum yeah. um, because we never have to think about that, right? We never have to think about yeah. lack of air pressure around something. Um, and that's just one thing that they look for there. There's a, yeah, I'm sure, you know, there's like touch temperature concerns and sharp edges and workmanship and, you know, what, you know, tons of stuff. Um, but 
at the same time, you don't want to bog yourself down so much in, you know, certification process that you're not getting any use out of this facility, this world-class facility. Right. So it's been a mix. So I'm also curious, what is looking forward? What are you most excited about? Ooh. Well, the work that I'm working on is, is pretty exciting. Uh, both projects uh, right now, uh, like I said, I still get to keep my toe in the water for some of the graphic stuff. Um, but the, the two newer things that I'm working is the gateway systems engineering. So it's fun to, um, it's not so fun to write documents all day, but when you realize that the, the impact of that is you have a hand in sort of guiding some of the design decisions, you get to speak up, you get to, you know, for people that maybe went to school dreaming of helping to design spacecrafts to go and explore the solar system. I mean, this is it. Uh, so that's, that's a pretty exciting thing to be a part of. I mean, I'm involved in a very small role, but, uh, but I'm involved and, and it's, it, it's, it's fulfilling to know that you're having a hand in that. And then um, the RFID project that I work on is, 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 uh, is super cool. Uh, you're getting to operate some hardware on space station, which is a lot of fun. Um, and the RFID technology that we're doing, um, I could talk about it a little bit. It's um, so if you guys are familiar with RFID, uh, I guess the thing that most people might be familiar with uh, stuff that's not near field, like not NFC, but like far away stuff would be like a toll tag when you go through a toll booth, right? So that toll tag is not powered, but there's a there's an, a transmitter on the toll booth that transmits enough energy to what they call light up that tag. It powers it for a brief amount of time, and then that tag can return information back to the antenna. Um, and so RFID, that's basically the same concept with RFID. And all of the inventory, all of the logistics and stuff that goes up on Space Station has RFID tags on it. Hmm. Um, so the idea of the product that I work on is that we have antennas. I wish we had them everywhere, but we have them on three of the modules. And we kind of read out in the open air and see what we can read. And we get back, um, you know, what tag we read. What was the power, the signal strength that we got back, um, phase, a few other things, the frequency that it responded on. Um, <clears throat> but that's not enough to tell you where that item is. It, it turns out that um, finding stuff on Space Station winds up being a very difficult and important thing to do. And I think some people are surprised by that. But if I put you in the shoes, I mean, like, let's say these four people that just showed up, right? Um, space station is about the interior volume is about the size of a six bedroom house. So it's, it's pretty big, right? So imagine you moving into this huge house. You've never been in it before. You have no idea where anything is. And then on day three, someone hands you a procedure and it says, we're going to change out this GFCI cable, go get part number, blah, 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 blah. You need this tool. You need this flashlight. You need to go and find, you know, this, two rolls of duct tape and Velcro, go. And you would go, uh, <laughs> okay, well, I think I saw the duct tape, but where is that GFCI-specific serial number stored, right? Where is the all of these things, these tools that I need? And then when you get to, like, the experiments they do, it's way more complicated than that. They have very specific tools, and they're doing surgery up there. On, they, they got a million things that they need. So it turns out that being able to find stuff – 
when the crew member's time is worth probably something in the order of tens of thousands of dollars an hour, the ability for them to find stuff and go do things is very important. Well, that's where our system comes into play. What we want to do is we want to scan things and then try to come up with a way to say where we think it is. So if the inventory management system says it's somewhere and it's not there, we can fall back to our system and say, well, we last scanned it over here. And so that was sort of the first evolution of that is we could we could look at those signal strengths and try to you can't really triangulate because you're in this big tin can so all of those rfid signals are bouncing around sure it's not like you can say well i got it from this strength from this antenna and this strength from this antenna and this so therefore it must be here it's uh there's it's very multi-path environment so you, you can't really do that very well but the next generation that we've just got through implementing is taking all that data and running it through some lang- uh, learning processes, some AI stuff, so that when you have truth tags, you know you have signals for specific areas on station, and you can train engines up such that when you give it a different reading from different antennas, you look at it and you go, okay, well, this engine thinks that it's here and this engine thinks it's here. You know, based off all of the engines that we've run, we think there's a pretty good chance that it's in this rack, in this drawer. And um, and so that's super exciting. I know it's a long answer to your question, but that's the other thing that's really exciting because we're, uh, we're bringing some new AI stuff to uh, natural learning to those algorithms and we're trying to get it ready to fly on gateway. So gateway is going to need an inventory management system. And we'd like to have this system and, you know, mature to the point where when we get ready to fly gateway, we've got reliable hardware and we've got some really good uh, natural learning algorithms to, uh, Hmm. to determine where things are based off the signals. So Hmm. both of those, both of those areas are super exciting to me. Yeah, you'd, you'd think you could get the guys to just put things back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, that's the case for some things, but a lot of times the procedure is for them to move it. And then every time a vehicle comes up, they have to go get a million things out of the vehicle and bring it in. Then they have to take all the trash and all the stuff that's leaving and get it out. And sometimes they throw away stuff that they weren't supposed to throw away, which is a giant problem, right? You know, and then sometimes they, yeah. So inventory management winds up being a very uh, well, it's super important. Yeah, super important and, and a problem that has a lot of. Uh, impacts if you can solve it sure yeah i used to run the inventory for puget before coming up to labs and we talked about putting rfid on everything yeah to be able to track it throughout the warehouse but then it it became a very complex solution very fit very fast so we didn't do that yeah the nice thing is is if you can if you can get and we're working on you know one of the the things that we would like for our system to be able to do is be able to maybe be commercialized and and give solutions to warehouses like you guys are talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the nice thing is the RFID tags are so cheap and they're already, the industry has already sort of run with them. So like, you know, every hotel, the, the bed sheets and everything has RFID tags sewn into them. They can tell when they got washed. They can tell when they go in and out of rooms. They can, you know, like they, they've got RFID tags being used in industries all over the place. Um, wow. So the tags are, can be very cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They're the other, cheap. The other thing that we're working on too is uh, is sensing with those tags. So a lot of those tags have the capability when they're 
powered on that they can provide a payload with that data. So if they read temperature or humidity or oxygen levels or whatever, so that you can light them up and actually get some data back. Um, so you have like truly wireless sensing. That's neat. that's another area that we'll that we're working on. Wow. Yeah, we also ended up dropping it because we didn't think a lot of our customers, especially government contracts and stuff, would want computers showing up that had RFID tags yes. attached to different parts. So we're like, yeah, this probably might not work so well. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I know like at NASA all of their equipment is RFID tagged. Yeah. Wow. But not usually at the component level. You're saying that they want components inside the vehicle tagged? Yeah, we weren't sure if like, do we tag the system itself? Do they, do, how do we pull the tag before it ships? Like right. all that kind of stuff. And right. So not just on the box. Yeah, RFID tracking was was fascinating to me. <laughs> the uh, Travis had a question. Oh yeah, is there any uh, medics built tech operating in space now? Um. Yes. Uh, there's a number of things um, that Medix is involved with that's in space. There's a number of different software packages. Um, uh, one of them is called, I mentioned earlier, called Robot. Uh, that is a, a, one of our subcontractors called uh, Harmony Lane Technologies. Um, if you want to look them up, they're, they're a great group. And they maintain this uh, simulator for us. Which allows the crew. Remember some of the dynamic skills training. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they have the capability to. They they need to refresh their training while they're on orbit. So keeping up uh, proficiency is a big deal, and that's also another thing we got to get better at because the stuff that you need to train for on a mission to Mars, you're not going to know about what they're going to need to do until they're about to show up. So like. Mm-hmm. You know, once they're about to land and they realize, look, when you're there, these two power stations need this done and these, you know, you're going to need a way to have them go through in VR and train some of these things and try it out before they get there. So uh, on-orbit training is a big thing. And so that's that robot, uh, for Robotics onboard trainer that lets them fly the robotic arm. Um, so that's one thing. There are... Um, the treadmill vibration isolation system is something that uh, medics has been involved with so you guys are probably familiar with the treadmill um when the crew is running on the treadmill they have to have a way to keep all of that pounding on the treadmill from vibrating the whole space station sure so they have these um this very intricate thing called vibration isolation system um, and Medix has been involved in generating the next uh, version of that so that they can do exercise on orbit for future missions. Um, trying to think what else. Uh, obviously, the, the work that we've done on the Realm system, uh, so those have flown, and we've got those. Uh, we've been involved, we're mostly involved with the software on those units. There's some other folks that... that build and certify the hardware um what else i'm sure i'm missing some so people are gonna fuss everyone but uh but we've been lucky to have worked with a lot of different um 
a lot of different projects on space station. So it's it's fun to see your stuff fly. Oh, and the other the other thing I should mention about the realm system that RFID system that one that I mentioned with the fixed antennas is the first phase. We call that realm one. But the second phase um, is going to be a mobile reader that flies on a robot called Astrobee. And I don't know if you guys have heard of Astrobee, but if you do a Google search for NASA Astrobee, um, it's this little cube robot that Ames has developed. Uh, those guys over there are phenomenal. And it has two payload bays in it. And one of the payloads is going to be our RFID reader. And so what it'll let us do is, you know, we have the fixed readers we can kind of scan, but if let's say the crew's sleeping and we want to go search for something, we can fly that, you know, that robot, it just has fans. And of course has the benefit of floating and zero G. So we can fly that robot down through the corridors and actually home in on a tag and keep sort of sniffing for it until we detect it and then start turning and moving until the signal gets stronger and stronger and stronger and try to home in on where something is. Or we could fly through modules and take inventories, uh, you know, go back and forth and make a few passes and just inventory stuff. Um, so, so that's the second phase of that realm project. That's a really fun one uh, to see your stuff fly and then really fly like floating around. So yeah. we have some folks that are on the realm team that are going to get to take part in that when our Astrobee's already been doing some test flights, but we haven't flown our payload yet. So uh, on the robot, so that'll be super exciting. Yeah, that's, that's cool. neat. I looked that up real quick, and it's it, that seems really cool. It's yeah, a cool looking robot, isn't it? Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, and we we went over to Ames to test. They have a uh, granite, a huge granite table where they can um, pump in compressed air. They have like these tanks that you use like for uh, paintball. They put a few of them on, and it gives them so much running time. They're on a little air cushion, and it, they can float at least in two dimensions. They can float around on this granite table, and uh, and so they can test their algorithms and fly and run the fans and move it. And, and so we got to test with them there with our payload integrators. A lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking, looking forward to more Astro B missions. That's neat. So, okay, so we're, we're a little over our hour, and I have one, one more question. Sure. When when you're naming these things, does the acronym come first, or and then you fill it in, or do you have the name and then it just happens? Or it's usually a little of both. We call that when they go the other way, we call them backronyms. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it happens both ways. Uh, sometimes the acronym, you know, we, most of the stuff we talk in is an acronym, just because it's, it's the easiest way to to let people understand what it is you're talking about. But um, what's funnier is when you get the, the embedded acronyms. So for example, I went to a, a, I went to a career fair or an engineering thing at my old college and they had high school kids that came in and I was giving a display for our company. And I was talking a little bit about what engineers do in space and stuff. And they were mostly ignoring me. I don't think they were really paying attention. And so one, one kid looked at this piece of hardware that we had built, and he said, what is that? And I said, oh, that's the OHT. Um, it's used for the, and I saw them kind of look at me, and I said, I'm sorry. The OHT stands for OTCM Handling Tool. <laughs> and then, 
And then, and then my buddy had to hit me, and he goes, "You gotta tell him." And I said, "Oh, OTCM is ORU tool changeout mechanism, <laughs> and ORU is it's a, it, sometimes we get three and four level acronym deep um, before you start finally understanding what something is, but." Yeah, we, we, we have fun with some of our acronyms sometimes. So sometimes you, you get a cool name and then you just kind of back it out. Um, it does happen. And then there's some like TRIC. I mentioned the TRIC framework earlier. That's not an acronym for anything. It's just called TRIC. So um, sometimes you just get fun names without an acronym. That's cool. Oh, well, all right. We, we are a little over our hours. So we're going to have to say goodbye. This has been really cool. Um, I hope we get to talk to you again in the future for see, see how uh, some of your projects have progressed. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, I, hopefully I didn't talk too much. Hopefully uh, if, if you guys get some more questions or you want to follow up, we can, we can talk about PCs and computers in space and uh, go through all that stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time uh, out of your day to, to join us on this and talk about all the all the, man. This is it's just really cool stuff. Thank you very much. It really is. Okay. Well, we appreciate you guys and thanks for uh, thanks for providing us uh, great machines that keep everything running. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. Uh, and uh, I'll say goodbye to the audience as well. And oh, and Kelly, Kelly, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us and. and mm-hmm be a part of the show and uh, the audience as well um as as always the, the nice outro we do this wednesdays and fridays at 1 p.m pacific uh wednesdays we bring cool industry experts like frank on in here to uh to talk about what they do with with our systems and how that affects the industry and things like that and uh and then fridays we bring members of our labs team on to talk about kind of the crossover of what they do the software and hardware crossover and what's best to get your job done uh so mark your calendars for that wednesdays thursdays 1 p.m pacific and uh is there anything else you guys like to say before we go no all right then we'll say goodbye (laughs) thanks again bye thanks guys it was fun